everybody to a weekend review edition of the Total Soccer Show. I'm Taylor Rockwell. Joining me is a man who, unless his appeal goes through, will not be playing in the Champions League next season. It's Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Taylor Rockwell. Fingers crossed for that appeal, huh? <laughs> indeed, indeed. We're going to be talking a lot more about Man City's uh, potential uh, European ban. Uh, but we're going to start with the Premier League of sorts. Uh, only four games in the Premier League on Saturday and Sunday. Wolves, uh, Leicester played to a scoreless draw on Friday. Uh, substitute Sajo Mane kept Liverpool's winning streak alive against Norwich on Saturday. Sunday, there was a dramatic late winner for Tottenham against Aston Villa. Uh, some mistakes there defending. Uh, Arsenal tore Newcastle apart in the second half in their 4-0 win. Uh, let's start in there with, maybe let's go Wolves-Leicester very quickly because uh, Daryl and I watched that one in studio. We were kind of expecting fireworks. We were expecting drama. What we probably should have expected was a nil-nil draw because that is what we got. <laughs> Wasn't a classic, was it? This Not one, so much. I would say. Not um, so much. Could have felt that Wolves probably could have edged this one. And they do love a draw, though. Apparently they've drawn 12 out of their 26 games so far. I, I regard this as two points dropped for Wolves rather than mm-hmm. a point game. Well, a point, I suppose it's a point game for Leicester, isn't it? And Are we going to have to talk about the technological issue in this game? I mean, I, we, we could, but I was in the office with Daryl, who, uh, who maybe had grounds to be frustrated because it was his uh, side who had a goal chalked off. His point was, nope, it's correctly given. It's just the frustration of VAR with the current uh, understanding of the offside rule. That's the way it goes. And then his other point was Willie Bali, I think, should have had a goal chalked off, I think, last season or maybe earlier this season and didn't. So I think Daryl said it balanced out karmically. Oh, nice to have him back, though, isn't it, I think? <laughs> um, yes. I, I, I don't know if it was correctly given. I'm, I'm getting a bit conspiracy tinfoil hat here, mm. but I just don't like the way the lines were drawn. I don't believe that reflects what the, uh, what the situation was. Yeah, because are you going back to the idea that like, we're not entirely sure when the ball is played, when the ball leaves the foot, when exactly yeah. that frame is being frozen? And not, exact, not even when the frame is being frozen, but how the line is drawn on that frame. I, di- I just didn't see that the, the blue line was ahead of the red line. <laughs> just a curvy, wiggly line. It's like, that's clearly hand-drawn. I don't know about yeah. this anymore, fellas. I think I don't know. George Soros is behind this somehow. This conspiracy going on. <laughs> oh, I'm glad that you've uh, you've led us down the conspiracy road. Let's go to the big news out of the Premier League: the situation with Manchester City. Uh, Ryan, you've covered them last season. I suspect you have at least some sympathetic feelings for them. But as Daryl and I talked about at the end of last week, the news broke: uh, Man City currently uh, suspended for the next two Champions Leagues uh, campaigns, and then uh, fined 30 million euros, 25 million pounds, somewhere in there. Conversion rates are difficult. Uh, Man City have, I'm going to say, aggressive responded to this one. They're already expected to appeal, uh, appeal to the Court of Arbitration for sport. And it, this is one of those situations, for me at least, where removing my bias at least as much as I can being a Man United fan, I, I read this and I think like, okay, yeah, this is like they, 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 they cheated. They kind of got around some rules. There were some loopholes in there. And the more you read about it, the more you realize I, I don't know how open and shut this case is going to be. And I sort of start to understand a bit more why Man City are taking this sort of aggressive approach they're taking. But before I kind of go deeper on my thoughts, I wanted to hear, Ryan, where you are on all this. I think you're right, Taylor. I think like a good wedding cake, there are layers to this one. <laughs> mm, yeah, mm, like that. Khaldun Al-Mubarak, the, uh, the chairman of Man City, he said a few years ago, he told Gian- Gianni Infantino that City would rather spend... Uh, I think it was 30 million on yeah. the 50 best lawyers in the world and sue UEFA for the next 10 years uh, than, than have to pay a fine or accept a fine. So we can see where Man City has set their stall out on this situation for a while. I've got mixed feelings on it because at the same time, they've done something wrong here. 
Mm-hmm. They've broken the rules. They've they worked outside have. the rules. Uh, you know, and we know, and they knew what the FFP rules were. They knew what their uh, losses could be, and so on. And maybe they've done some creative accounting. Maybe they've, maybe they've done some accounting fraud. Who's to say we are not financial uh, experts in that field, and we haven't seen the uh, information that was illegally hacked from them, by the way? And that's where we yeah. start to lead into the problems here, Taylor, because what? If you're looking at how City are going to defend themselves, A, they can just flat out deny that the uh, the financial improprieties that have been aimed at them are true and, you know, the information isn't true that UEFA are working on. And B, they can go after, you know, this this all came from the article in Der Spiegel. You remember when all those mm-hmm. hacks came out after a while and it was a hacker called Rui Pinto who is currently in jail for forgery, hacking and fraud. He's awaiting trial. So they could very easily argue that the stuff that he has found is inadmissible. And you can kind of frown at that and say, well, inadmissible, but, you know, he found what he found. But then you look at other clubs who haven't been fined. And we were talking about this off-air earlier, Taylor, about PSG. Where's PSG's ban? Why didn't UEFA go after them Mm -hmm. as hard? Why did they sort of back down from the fight with PSG and they're going for Man City? And I worry for the sort of sanctity of European soccer in that if UEFA try and take this to the natural conclusion and they don't back down either... City are going to win this battle and it's going to kind of break European soccer apart. So when you first messaged me that, I I thought you were maybe seeing this through uh, city blue tinted glasses. Uh, And and I think there's like there is some level of that maybe a little bit in there because I I don't have much issue with the hacking. uh, And that was what I also thought deeply on there was like, yes, it's it's hacked information, but it still exposes financial wrongdoing. At least we we believe it does. That's what the reporting has indicated. It is still stolen information. So it's I guess it's a slippery slope, but I, I think it at least brings sort of potentially the truth to light. Where I think your concerns are valid and where I feel like there is a larger issue is that UEFA are not a squeaky clean organization. That much has been made clear previously, uh, going even back to Qatar winning the World Cup bid and sort of the the shady connections in there between Platini and, and everything else that went on. And then, as you said, the, the dealings with PSG where they definitely broke some rules and then got maybe not even a slap on the wrist. Mm-hmm. And so... I take your point that this may be City hiring a bunch of expensive lawyers to sort of tear UEFA apart, go through them line by line, go through every single action they have done, everything that they have not done, and then sort of bring all that to light and bring it to light very publicly to sort of, in their minds, expose the hypocrisy of the way that UEFA are choosing to operate. I don't know if I agree with their level of vitriol because I think part of it is definitely rooted in we've been caught a little bit here, but we don't feel like we did anything wrong because we feel like everybody else does this. Uh, But I do think that you may end up having a sort of uh, we would rather uh, scorch the entire earth than uh, not play in the Champions League sort of approach from Man City. Some people just like to watch the world there it burn, is. Taylor. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. But if you look at this, you know, let's try and work this out to its natural conclusion. City are richer than UEFA. City are not just a soccer club. Yeah. They are a country. They can get better lawyers than UEFA. Um, can UEFA, as you say, they're not a squeaky queen organization. What if um, you know City start digging into their affairs and try and find some impropriety on UEFA's side? And uh, there was an article by Jonathan Wilson in The Guardian where he kind of inferred that this could be a battle that UEFA could lose because it could sort of start a breakaway Super League. What if other clubs don't like how UEFA are treating City here? And what if City decide, oh, we can get some... He he mentioned an example of instead of playing in UEFA competition, City go and play lucrative friendlies around the world instead. And they realise, hang on, we don't need UEFA's dollar here. 
And what if other clubs realise that? And then look ahead to next year, Taylor, and FIFA are expanding the Club World Cup. FIFA are not part of UEFA, they're a different board, and they might bail out some of these big clubs by offering them an expanded Club World Cup, which is what we're getting next year. And then you've got a situation where UEFA aren't really holding the powerful hand in this game of poker anymore. But my, my my reaction there is that like isn't that a bit like saying like don't punish the guilty party because they might get mad and take their ball home like if they are judged and found and determined to have done something wrong to have uh, cheated financial rulings to have cheated financial fair play isn't being concerned about them like demanding that things be changed or else they're going to go home sort of like conceding the point to P- to, uh, to Man City already. Somebody's not been watching American politics over the past few months, have they? I mean, actually, maybe that is where that's coming from, that, like, uh, if people don't want to hear about politics, you can plug your ears for a moment. But, like, when when, uh, Donald Trump was impeached, that was my dad's whole argument of, like, well, congratulations, you've reelected him because now you've impeached him and nothing's going to happen. And I was like, what? So he's just supposed to, like, be allowed to operate with impunity because he might get reelected if Democrats... Like that, that logic never really made that much sense to me. Uh, we'll right. see how it goes in 2020. Uh, and so I guess maybe that is where partially some of this response is coming from. But I think I do again, again, go back to with that said, Man City do have that financial power behind them. And this does feel like a situation in which UEFA are coming in and saying, like, we're proposing two year Champions League ban and maybe with the hopes that you all will agree to one year ban. And then it ends up with like, Okay, fine. But you're definitely getting a slap on the wrist and we're agreeing you're getting a slap. We're not agreeing you're getting. Okay, we're going to say you got a slap on the wrist and you don't have to agree with that. But that is your punishment and that is final. Like it it definitely feels like a situation that is going to be boiled down over the next six months or so. And I think this could be tied up in the courts for a long time. As you say, it's quite likely that the uh, court of uh, arbitration for sport are going to bring this down to a one-year ban. That's quite typical that these UEFA bans get cut down. But then, you know, if if Man City are as stubborn as they are suggesting, they could try and take this to the Swiss Supreme Court. They could take this all the way. And as as Albarak said a while ago, he'd rather tie this up and (laughs) and Mm -hmm. rub UEFA's face into the ground with legal nonsense for the next 10 years than have to concede any ground on an issue like this. Can I also... Make a point. I'm, I'm sounding a little bit like a Man City toady here, but I, I, I would argue why is financial fair play fair? Because there's a, there's a few. There's if we look, take a step back from the Man City situation. I'm just going to go ahead go, and wheel myself away from the microphone while Ryan does this. Go ahead, Ryan. <laughs> Let's look at FFP. Uh-huh. Why is it fair? You Manchester United, the, the, the team you like, for example, they've got the highest debt in Europe. Their debt increased by almost 180 million dollars mm-hmm. in the latest financial report, according to CNN. That's a 55 percent increase on the previous year. They're operating within the parameters of financial fair play, but they're not operating within the spirit of financial fair play. So Man City have broken the rules in terms of the parameters that financial fair play has set. But why would they get punished when a team like United and the way the Glazers treat that team, they get away with it? And the other side of this coin, Taylor, before Uh I let you jump in there. (laughs) Yeah, go ahead. Is I'm not convinced that financial fair play is actually the right thing to have at all. Why is it? Un- why are we punishing teams like Manchester City, like PSG, for spending a large amount of money to get in with the cabal of the rich clubs? By limiting them, by you know, we're, we're basically saying, oh, the, the big teams. It's only Manchester United. It's only Real Madrid. It's only Barcelona. No newcomers are allowed in. You can't come in. You can't because the difference between Man City and PSG and the big established heritage teams, heritage. I did some air quotes for you there. You can't see it, but it did. Is that they've both spent a lot of money. It's just that the heritage clubs have done it over a longer period right. of time. Yeah. 
the argument here is that you can't spend in a short period of time. And I just don't see the difference. I'd rather see more competitions and different teams rising up at the top level rather than seeing the same old teams playing each other. I'd rather it was a bit more open at the top. Can you, is that a fair argument? Well, first of all, I don't like Manchester United. I am forced to continue to support them out of my like decades-long obsession <laughs> with them. But I do not like them these days. Uh, maybe that will change. We'll see. So I take issue with you right there. But I do agree with your point about heritage clubs. Uh, I will be honest there. That, like... There's a reason why I support Manchester United, I who have only briefly ever been in England and spent my entire life on the East Coast of the United States. Like, it, it is not as though I am some, uh, like, steeped in the tradition of Manchester United local. It is that they are this global brand who were on television when I first started watching soccer, and there you go. Man City were not. Man City didn't have that sort of reputation at the time. They had it previously. Um, and I think that you're, you're not wrong, that it is sort of these clubs trying to catch up and trying to even eclipse, if possible, in the case of PSG and to some, to some extent Man City, eclipse those, those clubs who have had that long-standing status. I think the idea of financial fair play to me was meant... If you want to go with the most idealistic way of interpreting it, it was meant to sort of protect clubs from themselves, to protect, let's say, Portsmouth as a key example, like right. overspending to try to stay competitive when you can't actually afford it and you're leveraging debt against if we win this and if we get into that, then it will work out and that will bring more fans and we expect this to happen. And then when that all falls through, you're Portsmouth today. I, I get where those goals come from. But you are right, as strange as that feels for me to say, because I did not agree with you before we started this conversation. But you're not wrong that like the, the terms are set in such a way that they're essentially deliberately trying to limit the uh, influx of very, 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 very wealthy owners who have the ability to make their club instantly competitive. And right. I understand why you, like the idea comes from, well, we don't want that to be sort of, that feels like cheating, that feels like an unfair competition that you're now creating. But in reality, like it is sort of the market that they have established by allowing the influx of money to begin with. It's just now we're seeing super, super, super money as opposed to just regular absurd wealth that we've maybe seen in the past. And and so it is sort of you allow things to go the way they have, and now you if want to sort of uh, bring about regulation and, and try to exert some control. And it does feel a bit like the way Man City are approaching this, they feel like they do have more power here. Just the way they have sort of constantly not even defended themselves, not even said like, you know, this is like, we understand we did some things wrong, but this is unfair. Like just saying, uh, city CEO, uh, Ferran Soriano, the report today was that he told the players, trust me, like I trust you, this will be dropped. They are just not, there's no sort of like concession of the point and like maybe we'll agree to one year. It feels like they are going to fight tooth and nail for as long as they can and drag UEFA through the mud as much as they possibly can. And again, that's, that's, that's their prerogative and that's UEFA's responsibility to deal with that because they've opened this investigation and and they opened the one against PSG and didn't really follow through. So I think they've kind of put themselves in the crosshairs while yeah. trying to put Man City in theirs, if that makes they sense. Have, definitely. And I think Man, I think Ferran Soriano is saying that kind of thing. He's looking at the way that UEFA surrendered without a fight to PSG. Mm-hmm. And I think he's yep. saying we can do the same thing. And I, as I said before, I think City hold the cards in this argument, frankly. I, do and as it's well. not, I don't think it's right that they do. But they do. Mm-mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're probably going to get some some flack for this conversation, and that's fine because I, I'm trying to 
understand the situation as realistically as I can, and I guess maybe as cynically as I can, but I would love to believe the idea of UEFA are this governing body who are responsible for creating fair play and for promoting equality of the game. They're not. But I like to believe that they were, and that this were this like pure motive of, you all are cheating, that is not okay. But then when you have those other examples of UEFA acting inappropriately, allowing clubs to kind of slide by, specifically PSG, um, it, it feels a bit more like, well, now you guys are kind of picking and choosing, and I don't defend Man City at all, because I do think that they found ways to get around uh, financial reporting and regular financial reporting. We'll see if they falsified anything. That would be a very different sort of situation in my mind, but right. I don't have any sympathy for Man City, but I guess I sort of don't have any sympathy for UEFA either, and thus I sort of accept that it's going to be this just death match for the next uh, year or so. We should say uh, a death match for the next year or so that will seem to include Pep Guardiola still at Man City. He has reportedly told the players that he's not going anywhere. It doesn't matter if they get relegated. If they're not in the Champions League, he is vowing to stay there or at least see out his contract. And we should note there is also an independent investigation by the Premier League separate from UEFA. Uh, and that is where the reports of potential points deductions and possible relegation, that's not going to happen. But it's possible. Um, well, that's actually, where that is coming um, from. There's also talk, because these incidents took place between 2012 and 2016, there is talk of taking away their 2014 title as right. well. Isn't that fun? It is. It is. It, again, <laughs> it, it all feels like a sort of runaway train a bit at the moment. And then I think in a, in, over this week, my guess would be that we'll see sort of some of that uh, hyperbole, some of that. Well, they could even be kicked out of the league altogether. I saw that report last night. That feels very unlikely to me, but I think we'll kind of see the, the dust settle and we'll kind of know a bit more where we are near the end of the week. So maybe yeah. we'll check back in on that one. I'm sure I- this will be ongoing and there will be much more news uh, to follow. Can I ask you one one question to, to sure. follow up on this uh, from a sporting perspective? Do you think, let's say it's a one-year ban next year, which seems like mm-hmm. the most likely outcome yep. at the moment, do you think Guardiola stays? I do. I, I think uh, because I think a one-year ban is is where I am in terms of the most realistic outcome. I don't know if it will happen in time for next season, which would be very strange. I, I right. do think the Court of Arbitration for Sport is going to rush this uh, to the forefront. They'll probably deal with this much faster than they've dealt with other cases. So the expectation is that they would try to get it done by like mid-July. But even then, as you said, Man City will probably take it to other courts. They'll fight tooth and nail. Uh, I equate it with like uh, O.J. Simpson's lawyers, where they are probably going to argue every single piece of evidence as long as they can and really drag this out. And if they do that, I don't know if they'll get it done in time, which means I I guess I wouldn't be surprised right now if we saw a scenario in which Man City, like there's this appeals process ongoing, nothing is settled, so they get one more year in the Champions League, which happens to coincide with Pep Guardiola's final year, and then maybe at the end of that, they end up getting banned. That wouldn't surprise me. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but that wouldn't surprise me, and I do think Pep Guardiola will stay, not just for that reason, but because he has said that publicly thus far. It seems like that is his plan. I don't know if he stays long term, but I think he at least sees out his contract. That's my answer there. Fair enough. Do you disagree? Not sure. I don't think. I, I, I think, regardless of this Champions League thing, I'm not sure he stays next season anyway. All right. All right. Yeah. Well, I guess. I guess we shall find out. And then, obviously, you have the other the impact on the players. We haven't even mentioned that. We'll do that briefly. Just that there are bonus incentives in there for qualifying for the Champions League, for scoring X number of goals in Champions League, or for making these appearances. And I think I saw today like Kevin De Bruyne could lose three million dollars next year if they're not in the oh, Champions no. League. Yeah, right. I know. Oh, the pauper. Uh, so, <laughs> so I, I, I do think. 
Maybe we'll see some movement from the players if this does end up getting resolved fairly quickly. Uh, but even then, I think City are going to be very loath to get rid of anybody because I think they're going to try to keep hold of everybody and keep doing what they've been doing and uh, move on from there. So I, I, maybe that is the cynical outlook on all things. Maybe it ends up being that City concede that they've done wrong and must uh, make good for their actions and, and UEFA become this upstanding body that will regulate everything. But that even just saying that you can kind of hear how absurd that sounds. So uh, you that's just said what, that's maybe City from. will concede that they're doing wrong, and that sounds absurd. <laughs> you know, it doesn't sound absurd to me, Ryan. Go on. Today's sponsor, Policy Genius, they sound nice. very logical and rational uh, in a world that increasingly seems res- less rational. The year 2020 shows up a lot in science fiction. A lot of people predicted that by now we'd be teleporting to work or living on Mars. Uh, I don't know if we predicted that Man City would be kicked out of the Champions League for two seasons. So you really can't see what's going to happen around the corner. And that's where Policy Genius can help you kind of get the right insurance you need so that things are a bit more settled. If and when you wait for come come for you and try to kick you out of your, your job, your competitive league you at least have policy genius there supporting you and giving you that backing yeah maybe man city just teleport to a different league then you know then <laughs> teleport somewhere else and make yeah. money elsewhere won't the man city super league yeah that seems like possible <laughs> policy genius makes finding the right life insurance a breeze in minutes you can compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price you could save fifteen hundred dollars or more a year by using policy genius to compare life insurance policies mm-hmm. once you apply the policy genius team will handle all the paperwork, all the red tape, all the fun stuff that City pay a lot of money to people in suits to deal with. Indeed. So if your science fiction dreams for 2020 still haven't become a science fact, do not get discouraged. Get life insurance. It just takes a few minutes to find your best price and apply at policygenius.com. Policy Genius will always get the future wrong. We better get life insurance right. Uh, Ryan, let's uh, can talk I about just, Can I just jump on that point? We always get the future wrong because mm-hmm. that relates to a prediction I made uh, a couple, uh, just over a month ago when i was uh, asked who when would liverpool first drop points mm-hmm. i made a bold 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 prediction that they would drop points at norwich this weekend and how that worked out came off <laughs> it was so close it was so close to coming off norwich they hit the post they, had a re- they played really well Sadi Amani ruined my dreams of, uh, Can- of, of bragging about getting a prediction right so we do always get the future wrong policy genius we do i i really appreciate that Liverpool have been so good this season that we're at a point where we're like, I almost got that prediction right where I said they might draw a game. But then they didn't, but I almost got it right. Like they, That's how comprehensively good they are. Uh, yeah, well done to Liverpool uh, in their 1-0 win. Well done to Sadio Mane. Uh, well done to Serie A for being, I think, the most entertaining uh, league this weekend. Well done, uh, it, Serie A. Especially given the way these games went out. It was it was a weekend of come-from-behind victories. Uh, Juve reclaimed their customary spot at the top of the table with a 2-0 win over Brescia. They did not come from behind. They came from 0-0. Uh, to win 2-0. Uh, but it's now Lazio who are chasing them after getting all three minutes, uh, three points, excuse me, in their critical match against Inter Milan. Uh, a little further back, Atalanta handed Roma a 2-1 loss to short fourth place for now. I think they're six points ahead of fifth place Roma. But let's start with Lazio and Inter, uh, a game that I had high expectations for. And it sort of delivered in terms of the drama. But I thought this was a really difficult game to watch in that I really couldn't get into the flow because it was so chippy. There were a lot of fouls. There were a lot of stoppages in play, a lot of cutaways to the crowd and managers gesticulating in slow-mo images of players yelling at each other. And it didn't feel like this kind of free-flowing game that the commentators seemed to be watching. I'm wondering where you were on this one, Ryan. Uh, I kind of buy what you're saying. And a lot of what you're saying, I think, is what you'd expect from Italian soccer. But I yeah. thought it was very enjoyable to watch, despite... The, the 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 slight lack of free flowing soccer, as you say, I thought it was, this was a really good game, and I will 
confirm your statement that Serie A is very, very exciting this year. And, and, and Lazio are a big part of that, I think. And these two teams are a big part of that. And they certainly are. Just, so, who, so who stood out to you in this game? Who made it uh, entertaining for you? I've got a couple, but since you seem more positive on it, let's go with yours first. Uh, well, I guess Milinkovic Savic is the obvious. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> he had a good one, didn't he? Yeah, I had thumbs up to him for being uh, unplayable most of the game. Mm. He is so big and so strong and decently fast, but still has like footwork that doesn't seem entirely fair. I I, I get more and more the comparisons to Paul Pogba. You see a lot of similarities right. between those two. Uh, although I guess SMS had his bad season last year, and Paul Pogba is having his this year. So maybe even then, you've got the comparisons. 100 million, do you think? What do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. just because of what he brings uh, in terms of the size, but also the ability, the leadership, the kind of uh, fluctuation in where he's going to play, or the flexibility would be a better term there, because he starts centrally, he moved up top for a little bit in the second half, then he kept kind of dropping deep into pockets of space to mm. uh, either pull defenders with him, or if they didn't go, then just be open to receive the ball and drive at the defense. And then obviously he scores uh, the winner, in fairly chaotic fashion, but I think that was even sort of commendable and impressive to me because it's what a, a corner that comes in, uh, it's saved on the line uh, by Brozovic, not even the goalkeeper, but it's saved by Brozovic. It kind of end up spilling, it spills to uh, Sergei Milikovic Savic in the box, and he does a great little pullback uh, from his right foot to put it on his left foot, and then he shoots perfectly, places it really well. But mm. that little bit of footwork to create the space to get the shot was excellent. And if you go back and watch, he's on his toes the entire time, which is something that I have when I coached kids. Uh, I would try to teach them. It's really hard to get into their heads. Uh, coaching adults now who've never played before, that is a thing that no one seems to understand, that if you're standing flat-footed, it doesn't really work when that ball comes to you out of nowhere. Here, mm. he's up on his toes. He keeps adjusting. He keeps pivoting little, little movements, and he ends up being in the exact right moment to pull, to shoot, to score, to win. Well done, Sergei Malikovic savich It reminded me a bit of um, Eric Cantona in the FA Cup final of 1995. Yes! Was yeah. it that goal against Everton? Mm-hmm. Similar kind of Good adjusting call. of the body? Yep. Yeah, like Very, the, you're talking about like the hop away volley that he did. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. I, I see what you're talking about. Yes, yes. Similar, like the mechanics don't seem like they should work, and yet somehow they did. Um, so yes, so SMS was great, but can I lead that to um, a thumbs down for Padelli, the Inter goalkeeper? Because I think you, you were saying last week on the show, Taylor, that uh, when we were talking about the Milan derby, that the commentators were being a bit unfair about him and giving him a hard yes. time unnecessarily. I think it was necessary to give him a hard time for his performance <laughs> in this game because you look at, say, I think the penalty where mm-hmm. um, he was sort of late off his line and I think he stumbled over a teammate before getting to the... Oh, he didn't get to the ball. And then for the for the, for the the winning goal, which we just talked about there, his positioning looked off again to me, let Brozovic do the save on the line and sort of the dive for the shot was looked a bit late to me as well. Wasn't terribly impressed with his performance. Yeah, no, I think it was... Uh, I forget, I think it was uh, Skriniar that he barges into and knocks over over in the lead yep. up to the penalty. Uh, yeah, that was that was not great. And then, yes, that he is not materially involved in the winner is also perhaps slightly telling of his performance. Not materially involved. I love that as a yeah. description. <laughs> uh, I also felt slightly bad for Stefan de Vrij, a player that we uh, were both uh, praising highly last week. Uh, less praise for him this week, I think, from us, but also from the Lazio fans. Uh, did, I'm assuming you noted that he was booed literally the entire game every time he touched the ball. I thought they were saying boo earns. 
<laughs> I knew you'd. I think I mentioned that last week when we were talking about booing, and I, I believe I said to Daryl, Ryan Bailey will be mad if I don't say, "Are you sure they weren't saying booerns?" <laughs> and I'm glad that you've done the same. I love you, Ryan. Uh, but in this one, I, I I was going to look it up. The commentators this time did an excellent job of explaining that I believe uh, Devry moved from Lazio to Inter, uh, and that in of itself wouldn't make him not particularly popular. But then it's the case that I think when the move was sort of official, but not really official in that it was like definitely going to happen, but he was still playing for Lazio in their game. It was two years ago against Inter. He concedes a penalty. It gives Inter the win. And there was a feeling, I guess, amongst Lazio fans that this is a player who's moving to the club and now he's given them a penalty. We hate this guy now. And that was mm-hmm. evident in this game. Booed literally every time he touched the ball. And then he also concedes the penalty for a foul on Chiro Mobile. Um, I thought that was harsh, by the yeah, way. Yeah, I was going to say, it's kind of harsh in that Chiro Mobile is, is like, his, his foot is going back to kick the ball, and he makes contact with DeVry, uh, goes down. But we've seen that given in the past, that even though the player doesn't know the attacker's there, even the, atta- or the defender doesn't know that he's, that he's sort of making that inhibiting run, it still ends up being uh, given as a penalty, even if it wasn't intentional. So a bit harsh there, but I think a bit harsh for Stefan DeVry the entire game. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, yeah, to reiterate on that penalty, it just looked like he was lightly touching yes. Immobile's shoulder, which I think you're mm. allowed to do in a contact sport. Um, yeah, <laughs> but, I mean, you would, you would assume, but you would assume, but we're not sure. We're never sure with these things. And can I sort of maybe give a thumbs down to Antonio Conte you may. Mm-hmm. for the nature of kind of whiffing, um, to use American parlance, um, into chance of making a meaningful title charge? It, it it was. I don't disagree with you, but w- why do you feel like this was a whiff from him? Well, I think he made some interesting decisions in this mm-hmm. one. Like uh, I don't know, he took off Brozovic, who was kind of the glue holding the whole team together yep. from my perspective, which I wouldn't have done. I think he held off. When was the substitutes he made? It was like seventy fifth, seventy sixth minute. Yeah, he made them pretty late. It, even Wenger doesn't wait that long. Mm-mm. I mean, it just seemed like. It, it, yeah. This this inter team it wasn't it didn't happen at Milan derby last week but they seem to play very well in the first half first hour or so and then can't sustain that they can't keep up the pressure and they sort of invite teams particularly when they've got a lead I think you, I think it's uh, yeah. the case as as was in this as well and I think they're very bad at that and I don't know I just feel that like this Man United um, substitute aren't going to win Serie A this year frankly. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot how many Man United players they have. Um, yeah, to your point, they bring in Christian Eriksen and Victor Moses fairly late in the game. And I, and I think uh, Inter fans may take uh, issue with this one, but so be it. We've already, we've already angered everybody else by kind of not necessarily condemning Man City, but instead sort of condemning UEFA. That's fine. Uh, but in this one, I think maybe Antonio Conte's sort of uh, approach and the inflexibility thereof is partially to explain what happened here because he doesn't mm. play Christian Eriksen or start Christian Eriksen and Victor Moses because I would assume they still don't have the match fitness that he wants. But it's Definitely a very not Ericsson. What's that? Definitely not Eriksen. Yeah, but I, but I feel like that's the intensity of his approach that like you have to be 150% fit to be able to function in Antonio Conte's system. And if he adjusted it a little bit when the game felt like it was there for the taking, Inter definitely had their chances, especially in the second half, and then Lazio were able to find their way through. It does seem like if he maybe modified a little bit and brought on those players, Victor Moses was, was solid when he came on. Christian Eriksen did Christian Eriksen things. Almost helped set up the equalizer that was chalked off for offside. 
you could sort of see the impact he had in his ability to find space and find passes and find just little angles that maybe other players couldn't. And I do think that a little bit more flexibility from Antonio Conte and a slightly earlier substitution of specifically Christian Eriksen, I think that goes a long way towards making the difference. And that is something we've seen lately in a lot of the games we've covered is coaches not being afraid to make halftime changes, not being afraid to change things up drastically when it's very clearly not going their way. This felt like Antonio Conte eventually... Actually, I would say, like, from the start being found out in that they were cutting off the supply to Romelu Lukaku, really limiting his ability to hold a play. And then from there, uh, Simone Inzaghi kept adjusting and kept kind of probing for vulnerabilities. And I don't think Antonio Conte did the best job responding to that. Yeah, he's the anti-Zidane. Maybe that's what we call him now. Yeah. And you mentioned about players needing to be 150% fit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lukaku, 150% fit. Maybe not. Yeah. Not sure. I mean, he had a good chance in this game, didn't he? But I, I don't know. I, he's saying about him being isolated, but I don't know. I, I don't know how, if he fits perfectly into this system, frankly. Yeah, I think there'll probably need to be a little bit more adjustment. There'll probably be more investment and a, a slight adapting of the approach, uh, probably as we finish out the season and then uh, in the off offseason. Uh, I, I have faith in Lukaku, especially since he has been very, very good for Inter in the scoring of the goals. Maybe it is just the case that he's a little fatigued. Alexis Sanchez uh, did not start in this one, wasn't able to come on until late as well. So maybe it's just Lukaku having to carry the burden partially explains uh, his levels of energy or lack thereof. Certainly so. Can I take a minute to um, praise Lazio? Can maybe give them a little thumbs up even? Sure. Uh, just think, you know, this is, this is a really good... I think Izagi's done a really good job with this team and to be competing for the Serie A title potentially rel- with the relative yep. budget he's got compared to Inter and Juventus. Lucas Leva really is good. a key figure for this team, put it that way. Lots of Liverpool rejects doing really <laughs> yeah. well for them and, and, and Luis Alberto as well. It's, uh, yeah, really, really good. They've made the best of... I suppose they're making better than the sum of their parts is the best way to describe it, isn't it? It and, certainly you know, is. A really nice, high-pressing team. They've got great movement. And as I say, it's, I mean, it's, it's hard to cheer for them with the whole fascism thing they've got going on in the yep. background. Mm-hmm. But uh, apart from that, yeah. Well done to them. I mean, it could be a first title in 20 years here. It's looking very exciting in this race. I wanted to give thumbs up to the Inter fans for the kind of getting in Stefan de Vrij's head, but then you're having to praise, or excuse me, uh, Lazio fans, and I don't want to praise Lazio fans. So uh, instead, I'll just move us swiftly on to talk about Atalanta's 2-1 win over Roma. Um, I had not watched very much Atalanta this season. I watched a few of their games to get ready for uh, the Champions League. Daryl and I did our Champions League previews uh, last week. I went deep on Atalanta, and I was happy to see that I was not wrong in that they are incredibly fun and Slightly anarchic to watch. Ryan, I don't know how much of them you've seen this year. What was it like watching them for you? Uh, what were your takeaways from their 2-1 win? Um, they are bonkers, as you say. <laughs> uh, I think they're great on the counter. They, they had a lot more of the ball in this game, it seemed. They had loads of chances. And as you say, uh, lots of players going all over the field to do mm-hmm. various things, which I think you can speak to a bit better than I can. But they do, at the same time, very, seem very well coached and very well trained. Uh, and obviously, credit to Gasparini for the substitute he made, who scored seconds after yeah. coming on. But what, what is Atalanta the best team for the Serie A neutral? Because Juventus, yes. you know, it's boring. They win everything. They're the death star of the league. Uh, Inter, uh, you know, throwing money at the problem. It's not the most idealistic way of doing things. Lazio, as we've established, yep. are fascists. So maybe Atalanta is the best one to, to pull for here. Yeah, I would have thought it would be Napoli this season, but then that sort of imploded under Carlo Ancelotti. They're less mm. fun uh, than we would have expected. I think you're absolutely right. Atalanta, I wrote down, are uh, a team in which... 
every single player plays on the half turn. They are constantly, like, every single one of them seems capable of turning under pressure, but turning into space and finding that little little yard that they need to then complete the next pass. I, I don't know how they're that well-trained. And again, this isn't a team, they've certainly got strong players, but they're also willing to sell those strong players, as they did in January when they sold their center back to Roma, uh, telling. Um, and yet they're still able to kind of keep the ball, uh, find opportunities, create opportunities, and really just completely dictate the pace of the game. They went 1-0 yeah. down off of a bad defensive mistake. We talk about that in a second. They come back and completely dominate that second half. A big part of that in my mind is uh, Papu Gomez. Thumbs up to him. He really is a man without any sort of position, or fixed position, I should say. Uh, he's nominally their number 10 in a 3-4-1-2, but he goes wherever he wants, and as I said to Daryl last week, the most amazing thing about that is he really does go wherever he wants, and yet the entire team seems to know exactly how to respond to wherever he might be. And so if he does drift out wide, they'll either utilize that as an overload or somebody else will kind of fill where he was, somebody else will step into another space, and just all of the sort of moving parts that seem to know exactly how to move is what makes them such a fascinating team. Definitely, yeah. I think, yeah, there's, there's, you've got to give credit to the manager for allowing that as well, mm-hmm. surely. Gasparini doing things, man. And then, yeah, I mean, as you said, making, including making smart substitutions. He's, he's, uh, subs on, uh, Pasalic, the Chelsea loanee, who, uh, I believe the commentators were saying that loan is expected to be made permanent. Mm-hmm. And, with moments like this, I would understand why, because he scores a beauty with his first touch. It's like an in-step bender into like the bottom or the back corner, not the bottom corner, the top corner. Uh, an amazing goal from Pasalic. Uh, and, uh, and an even like a better, strangely enough, equalizer from Palomino, not in the sense that it was impressive. It's just him sliding in at the back post to get yeah. the goal. But I say more so because uh, at the very end of the first half, he gets a, a rough back pass. He miscontrols it. It's a little sloppy, and that's all Ed and Dzeko needs. It's telling that the one time Ed and Dzeko really got a moment of space, he scores a goal from distance, clinically placed. Uh, and so Palomino, that's, I think, is like in the 45th minute, or maybe the 40th minute, and then he comes out and scores inside the first first couple minutes of the second half. So a, a strange way to bookend uh, the first and second halves, but he found a way to score, and I found that impressive as well, that he was able to rebound, get the equalizer, uh, Pashalic gets the winner, uh, and yeah, Atalanta secure that fourth place spot for now at least. Yeah. Palomino wins the uh, Alderweireld Award for redeeming yourself for this there weekend, we perhaps, because <laughs> he did the same thing there. Uh, he, he was very impressive. And uh, can we also say give uh, Gomez credit for that goal, for the winning goal, because of the way he sort of he muscled yes. off three defenders to get yeah. the ball uh, yeah. who, it was to go sense wasn't it and then who stabbed the ball into Palisic's path uh, which is a really nicely worked goal and a really great finish as well very very impressed with this team not yeah. quite so impressed with uh, Roma that's I fair they've they've, uh, they, they've lost three in a row now I think they're four without a win they've lost six in their last nine Made a few changes here looking for a bit of inspiration but evidently did not find that inspiration just this team seems just a bit toothless yeah i suppose yeah uh, and a team we should note uh who i guess uh tried to sign gasparini the atalanta manager prior to the start mm-hmm. of the season uh they did not get him and i think maybe they're ruining that all the more i thought chris smalling w- was decent i still have questions about his distribution but he put out some fires uh for that roma defense i thought uh patrick cliver is it pa- justin cliver justin cliver justin. excuse me patrick cliver would not be as mobile uh justin cliver well, i thought he was probably the bright spot in attack for roma and that's with ed and scoring but because of the way atalanta play roma had to sit 
get so deep and drop off so much that really Ed and Jekka was stranded. The only sort of outlet, the only sort of link between that that set uh, number of defenders and Ed and Jekka seemed to be Justin Clivert, who was the only one who was, I think, trying to carry the ball forward, trying to make things happen. So right. I, I had credit to him. But in the end, and to your point about Atalanta being so enjoyable, it is also that work rate, that that second goal comes from them just outward. It's a Roma throw that Atalanta sort of pressure and work and fight and like get the ball, but then lose the ball and then regain possession and then sort of are able to poke it free. And that's how it ends up uh, being a goal. But it's that next level work rate that I think will cause problems for Valencia in the Champions League and may yeah. still cause problems for some uh, Serie A teams this season. It was a cliche of Atalanta wanting it more. And can I can I give yep. a big thumbs up to ESPN um, Plus on their coverage? Uh, the graphic, did you see the graphic at the end of the game? No. Um, uh, the graphics department deserved credit because it said both teams had exactly 50% possession. Both teams had 100% pass accuracy. Uh, I think Atalanta had 500 passes and Roma had like 300. So I don't know how those numbers work. Yeah, that, congratulations that feels, to both teams that, for that 100% pass accuracy. That feels like somebody slept through the game, woke up, realized <laughs> they were supposed to be keeping stats. It was just like, uh, 50-50, but they had more passes? Yeah, sure, that's fine. That's fine. That seems like the way this game went. Why not? I didn't see anyone miss a pass. They must have both got 100. <laughs> Let's just give them both 100. <laughs> so, interesting record-keeping, but interesting times in uh, Serie A in that title race. In yeah. uh, La Liga, things are slightly tightening up as well. Uh, only five points separating third place Hatafe from eighth place Real Sociedad. Hatafe uh, is still in third place uh, because they did not get the win this weekend. Instead, at the top on Sunday, Real Madrid dot points in a 2-2 home draw to Celta Vigo, who I believe are currently 17th, so not the result they would have liked. That yeah. allowed Barcelona to make up some ground. They had handed Hatafe a 2-1 defeat on on Saturday. Uh, I enjoyed the tactics of this one. Uh, Ryan, is there anything in particular you enjoyed in this win for Barcelona? I enjoyed Hitafe. I think, <laughs> yep. are they the Spanish Sheffield United? Yeah, that's a solid shout. I, mean, maybe a little, I don't know. I was going to say a little bit more like guile and technique to them, but that might just be the kind of La Liga bias in my mind versus the Sheffield bias. By guile, do you mean the constant fouls? <laughs> there was a lot I mean, of that. There's that. There's there was that. that. <laughs> I mean, but I, I, I meant more in a manner of you know the, it, an impressive small team climbing the table. Mm. Uh, they thought they pressed Barca back into their own area quite a lot. They just looked unintimidated. They looked confident mm-hmm. uh, playing at the Camp Nou, and uh, this game. Definitely could have gone either way, couldn't it? It certainly could have, and they had their chances. Uh, they did go ahead, Hetafe, but the the goal uh, chalked off for uh, a foul off the ball. Uh, mm. But I think uh, to your point about them kind of pressing Barcelona high, they set up in a four four two. They dropped into a five four one when defending deep. But in that four four two, you would ha- you would have uh, Maro uh, Arambari, I believe is how you say it, uh, sitting on Sergio Busquets anytime there was a goal kick or a restart of play, and really just sat on Busquets the whole time, moved with him wherever he went, mm. and did a good job of making sure Busquets was in an option, but not then opening up options for people further up the field, further in midfield. And it really limited the way Barcelona were able to play because Samuel Ntiti, who I did, I think had a, a stronger game than I've seen from him. He isn't as as confident on the ball. Gerard Piquet did what he could. But I think like you look at the way uh, I think the corner that led to the goal that was then disallowed comes and it's basically Sergio Busquets coughing up the ball and Barcelona are out of position. And I felt like they were yeah. a bit rattled and that they were able to grow into it a bit more. Lionel Messi obviously a big part of that, uh, is very uh, revealing and very strong for Barcelona. But I thought it was uh, a very interesting game because Hitafe were so unafraid. So I, I absolutely agree with your estimation of them. 
Yeah, definitely. And Titi, I thought, was pretty good, as you say. I think there's a lot of... I thought PK was good in this one. Uh, Testegan was excellent. Uh, yes. Had really good footwork. Goodness some, gracious, he is good. He made some sensa- uh, one particularly sensational save. The triple save? Uh, yeah. He makes the save. If people haven't seen it, he like makes the save, but it's sort of it's still up in the air. It's on the line, and he kind of handles it off the line, and then realizes it's still loose, and then full stretch kind of palms it clear before anybody else can get to it. It really is yeah. like three saves in about uh, a second and a half. So well done to him. It was very, very, very impressive stuff. Um, yes, I thought he had a good game. Uh, Anzu Fati, a lot put on him, and I thought he was very impressive. Junior Firpo who I have criticized time and time again, mm-hmm. he looked like Marcelo at points. I thought he was great. Yeah, I think when they when they basically told him, like, just be Marcelo. Like, there, there was a time in, in early on when he was overthinking and he was trying to play these kind of complex, convoluted passes and they were not coming off. He was a substitute because Jordi Alba uh, went out fairly early in the game. And I think it just took him a little bit of time to get used to it and realize, like, oh, I'm going to have tons of space and time and people are going to be looking to me to help trigger attacks. I guess I better be a little bit tighter. And from then on, I felt like it was a, a stronger game from him than it was in those first five or ten minutes that he came on. Definitely. But I think the biggest credit that Barcelona deserve is sort of summed up in that first goal, which was yes. wonderful for so many reasons. Anton Griezmann getting the sort of deft touch from an amazing Leo Messi um, mm. one-touch pass assist. Uh, so l- let's start with the Griezmann finish, which... Um, if you look at it in slow motion on the replay, he dummies with his right foot before chipping with his left. And it's, it's such a deft touch. It's beautiful. It really is. And then you go back to the messy one-touch pass, which was amazing. It nutmegged a defender. It certainly did. nutmegged a defender. Uh, go back one pass further. And Titi had a really good pass, sort of, like, sort of a square ball to, to, to Messi for that one. It was just, oh, the whole movement was just absolutely wonderful. And it makes me think, yeah, this team's going to be all right under Setien because they are playing beautiful soccer and it's starting to get results. And uh, also we had some more wonderful Ray Hudson um, commentary on this goal. He said, yep. Messi doesn't just beat you, he Hannibal Lecter's you. I didn't, and, uh, I didn't really know what to make of that one. Does that mean he cuts their faces off? It means, yeah, he's very, very violent. And uh, okay. yeah, uh, he'll be in prison. Um, um, I'm with you, by the way. His other line, which was also slightly old, was, uh, passing is a technically transmitted disease. That I knew you were going to write that one down. I thought about <laughs> stopping to make sure that I had it written down, and I knew, Ryan's going to have that one. You don't need to worry about that one. I also enjoyed his moment when he just straight up cursed on air. Like, it wasn't a bad curse, but Messi had the kind of lifted ball in for Antoine Griezmann that no one saw coming. And uh, Phil Shane, uh, Hudson's uh, co-commentator, like, kind of kept the, the game moving and I think through to Ray Hudson and Hudson was just like how the hell did Messi do that like like he was the play it was gone like 30 seconds later and he still was kind of mesmerized by what Lionel Messi had done which is fair because I do have big thumbs up to Lionel Messi and Kike Setien uh, to your point about maybe Barcelona being okay uh, because the entire system that Barcelona were going for seemed to be have people uh, moving off the ball moving around uh, a little bit of positional fluidity but the main thing was uh, allow Lionel Messi to op- operate centrally and do whatever you can to see if he can get space on the ball and find those little pockets. And I think in this game, with Hatafe being in that four four two, their approach seemed to be that midfield four would sort of sort of step out if they needed to to shield that back line. And the idea was we step out, but we keep uh, ourselves aware of what's happening behind us so that that pass isn't on. And that usually works unless you're playing against Lionel Messi, who is mm. always going to be able to just 
slide over one yard uh, faster than anybody else can realize and thus find that space and open up opportunities. And that's exactly what happens for this goal. Umtiti finds him. Hatafe tried to step to him. Messi anticipates that step, and it's that deft little uh, one-touch pass that does make the defender. But everything about that play is sort of, I think, what Kike Setien is looking for, of build around Messi, keep him central. We've got a lot of injuries. We've got special dispensation to go out and sign a, a player. They found that out today. That is how injured they've been, so that yeah. they were able to get this result. I think has to have them feeling at least somewhat more optimistic. Yeah, that's definitely positive news about the emergency striker as well. But yeah, uh, Messi, um, who is the assist machine these days, I believe that uh, assist was his sixth consecutive uh, Barcelona goal that he assisted. Um, He had quite a few shots that he put into the stands. I think that's now 33 shots in a row without a goal. So he's a fraud now. (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, uh, Haaland was the fraud last week and Lionel Messi this week. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. Haaland's not fraud anymore because he got another goal. He's good. There we go. Okay, cool, cool, cool. They, they, they switched that one off. Um, uh, <laughs> the one negative I would say for Barcelona, and I do want to mention this briefly, there was a report today, uh, according to Ser, uh, and picked up by other papers in Spain, that uh, since uh, 2017, this is alleged, Barcelona have been paying a company to create profiles, uh, large social media profiles of 65,000 uh, followers and up, to spread positive messages about the club on social media, but specifically the actions of the board and president, uh, Bartomeu. Uh, then these profiles have also allegedly attacked names like Lionel Messi, uh, Gerard Piquet, uh, Pep Guardiola, and opponents. Uh, if you're wondering why that would be the case, uh, it was Messi, I believe, when he was in a contract dispute. It was Piquet when they felt like he wasn't as focused on the game. Uh, it was Guardiola when they were trying to downplay his significance. So it feels like this is Bartomeu trying to make himself and the board look better, is, I believe, the way... Uh, this story is developing, at least. That seems to be the narrative, uh, which could cause some problems uh, with the kind of harmony, the relative harmony of Barcelona, uh, and could cause some problems for Bartomeu, who I believe is going to be up for re-election fairly soon. So uh, another story to kind of keep an eye on, but one that seemed uh, fairly startling to me this morning when I first woke up. I'd say huge if true and also baffling if true. Yeah, um, right? Yeah, exactly. Wh- why, do these, why do they care what people on social media are saying about the team? I guess because they think that that's the way to get reelected is like if we manipulate fake social media accounts and fake social media accounts think we're great, then reelection. It's a little bit of an underpants gnome situation of like phase one, alienate players uh, to benefit ourselves. Phase two, question mark. Phase three, profit. That seems to be their approach. <laughs> oh, good luck to them. Good luck to this, all I can say. <laughs> uh, looking ahead to the Champions League this week, there were some noteworthy results. Uh, PSG went down 3-0 to Amiens, came back to lead 4-3, eventually gave up a late equalizer on a 4-4 draw. They rested a lot of players, including Edson Cavani, who actually played 90 minutes, but he didn't really uh, exert himself too much. Thomas Tuchel got so angry, he had to uh, power down until halftime. That, that was shocking to me. I watched most of this game this morning, and he went from just raging on the side Lines for the first 15 minutes to just sitting there suddenly, silently fuming. Uh, he went to the locker room prior to halftime. Uh, he missed a goal. We did. Under Herrera uh, scored right at halftime to make it 3 1. Right back under Herrera, that is. Yeah, that, that was the thing that I, I was sort of realizing was maybe why this wasn't as big of a deal. You had uh, Paredes <laughs> starting at central midfield in place of Marco Verratti. You had no Kylian Mbappe. The entire back four was different, including under Herrera, who uh, started it right back, as you said. And yet, even with all that said, it still felt like the PSG players' approach was from a, like, excuse you? Like, we're PSG? How dare you? You're not allowed <laughs> to score goals on us? And a credit to Amiens for going at PSG, taking their chances, clinical finishing from uh, Jirasi, Kakuta, and Diabate. Uh, PSG 
PSG never closing down. That's something that maybe Dortmund will want to keep an eye on, the fact that the, Dor- the defenders just kept backing off on counterattacks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, PSG do pull it back, but this game was uh, strange for everything I've said and more. Including uh, the offensively bright highlighter pink kits that PSG were wearing. Yeah, I didn't enjoy those either. Not a fan. Not a fan. <laughs> it, it, took me a while, it took me a minute to realize who was who in this one, because the color schemes were the same, and I wasn't ready for the bright pink of PSG, so yeah. that threw me off for a moment until I realized the other team had scored, and I knew it was Amien who were doing the scoring, so that helped it's, me figure it out. It's interesting. It's, it's the kind of game I wish, in hindsight, I'd watched live, because I only watch the extended highlights, because I think life's too short to watch PSG yeah, I mean, play a league yeah, game there's no way you would in the relegation zone, because there's no way you're going to think that's <laughs> one to, to single out, but it, it was great. Just a perfect warm-up for the Champions League. Both uh, PSG and Dortmund scoring four goals. Yeah. And PSG conceding four goals. It's, mm-hmm. Oh, it's going to be bonkers. Love it. It's going to be ridiculous, yes. Gael Kakuta, uh, by the way, former Chelsea star. star yeah. P- player. Gael Kakuta. <laughs> um, Employee. <laughs> affiliate. Uh, he's, yeah. got a, uh, he's got an absolute worldie as well, didn't he? Nice uh, route one move from the keeper downfield to him. He, he got a great goal. And, and uh, Jurassic, as you say, looked... He was made to look like a world-class number nine by this, really was. Uh, by this PSG defense. I did, I did wonder if maybe this was like a PSG's attempt to bluff Barcelona and to like, look how good these guys are. You should sign one of them with your emergency forward signing that you need to make. And then you sort of, uh, you maybe plant a one-time player into their squad. I, I do want to pause for a moment to just say thumbs up to Thomas Tuchel because in the past we've seen PSG managers sort of take the foot off the gas a little bit when it comes to uh, domestic competitions, looking definitely with an eye towards uh, European competitions or Champions League specifically. In this one, again, that he was so angry that he storms out before halftime. He yanks off uh, Adrisa Ganagay and Thiago Silva at the half. Uh, he makes the changes. He definitely lit a fire in that locker room, and he does end up getting the result in terms of they go ahead, they get the point in the end, which is probably better than they would have expected at 3-1 down at halftime. But he is still going for it and maybe that's not the case for Edinson Cavani as I said who had a pretty rough game got yelled at a lot by his teammates the touch was poor he missed some chances he made some questionable decisions that feels like a man who should have moved this January and everyone involved knows it and now he's just kind of seeing out the next six months yeah, all I heard was you just credit Thomas Tuchel for a team that's conceded four goals to a team that's going to get relegated. Yeah, well, there's that. Well, there's that. Well, there's that. I just think you could see the sort of stress in his eyes of, we're, we're doing this against this team? This is going to be rough against Dortmund. <laughs> I, this, that's a game that I, I predicted would finish 9-9 on aggregate. Maybe it it's will. like 11 or 12-9 is now where I am, uh, given the defensive leg. frailty. first leg. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. How bitterly disappointed is everyone going to be when it's nil nil in the I, first I, leg? So I try. I thought about qualifying that when I previewed that game, and I, I think I said this to Daryl at the time. I was just like, "There's just no way. There's no way that game finishes nil nil with the amount of offensive fire, firepower, but then some of the defensive liability, even from big name players like Thiago Silva, like Marquinhos, mm. like Matomos. There's still room for error, still room for doubt, and I cannot." Wait for that game. Even though it's not uh, on uh, TNT proper, I think you have to have the BR Live app. But still, watch that game. It's going to be great. It will be indeed. I get uh, the BR Live app too. Yeah, do that Just too. for that game. Just for that game. Uh, Ryan and I will not be talking about uh, those games next weekend. Daryl and I will instead be in studio breaking those down on Tuesday and Wednesday. Ryan will be back with me uh, next week to break down uh, more of the action from the weekend. I'm assuming we'll have some more Premier League games to discuss. Uh, we went Serie A heavy. We got Spain. We got a little Germany, a little France in there. More of that next week. But for now, Ryan, anything else to add before we call it a day? Um, no, I'm going to go off and take my paycheck from Man City for, uh, for uh, advocating them so much at the start of this podcast. That, that's it. I'm done. Uh, do, do I get a cut of that or was I just manipulated into agreeing with no, you and agreed. I don't even get paid for it? 
I get the Man City cut. You get the Barcelona money for uh, promoting and, and from, for dissing Messi and from promoting Bartomeu. We've discussed okay. this already. That's fair. Okay, cool, cool, cool. I, I forget the terms we had uh, heading into this one. <laughs> but I do like that you have taken on the Man City role and I have apparently taken on the UEFA role of like, <laughs> all right, I'll just do whatever you want. That's fine. That's cool. <laughs> yes, sir. Roll over. Roll over. <laughs> all right, right. Well, thank you very much uh, for taking all the time to talk about all those games. Always a pleasure. Never a chore.